Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show, the number one podcast where we admit no matter what happens, daddy has the advice we need to fix our problems. Introducing my dad, Mr. Wayne Friedman. That was good. It would be nice if you could also sing a song. What would the song be? You love Paris in the springtime. I just made up some words to it. I love Rena in the springtime. I love Rena in the fall. <laughs> That's right. That's good enough. <laughs> oh boy. Let's dive in. Today we have Biaser. He was a fan favorite from Netflix's Indian Matchmaking. Today we're going to talk about love, life, and reality shows. Biaser, welcome. Hey, hey. How's it going? Hi, how are you? Good. Good to meet you. Good to meet you too. I saw Fiesta in the background. Yeah, I was in San Antonio in 2017 and I stole that from the JW Marriott. Nice. How'd you get away with that? I was there for a conference. It's called TACAC, just a Texas admissions counselors event. We were there during Fiesta. The event was during Fiesta. And it was the end of the night. And I was like, man, this is a beautiful sign. I love this sign so much. And I like, I have posters and wall art all over my house. It's like, I got to get the sign. I got to get the sign. They're like, well, there's no way you're going to get it. So finally, it's the end of the night. It's like 2 a.m. And they're like, okay, let's everybody clean up. I was like, yeah, let me help clean up too. Grab the sign. We're headed straight up to my room. I love that. It's funny. So I went to like this Rocktober event, I think here in Chicago, it was uh-huh. a nonprofit run thing. And I was friends with a lady who was friends with the sponsor and they all had these dope tie dye shirts. I'm like, how do I get one of those? And then she like introduced me to a bunch of the people on staff and I walked away with a couple. I got into the VIP area. It's all just schmoozing the right folks or helping clean up, right? That's really what it is, is just schmooze and schmooze until you get a cool thing. You got the cool thing too. And then also my husband loves Eric Weinstein and he went on tour. Do you know who that is? Eric, why is the name familiar? He's a podcaster. He's, uh-huh. He works for Peter Thiel. He's been on Joe Rogan a bunch of times. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he did a live show and I saw that there was like an artist who volunteered and made similar like dope posters. So I contacted the guy who made the art and he was like, Hey, I'll send it to you. If you pay the shipping, I was like, so I got that framed. (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. Anyways, I just rewatched your story before this. It had been a couple of weeks. Oh my God. So tell me what it's like to be Netflix famous. It's a trip. (laughs) It's funny because like in the pandemic, you know, it's not like we're all going out and about and doing things and wearing the mask you would think people would still recognize you even with the mask on, but it doesn't happen that much. My life really, truly hasn't changed that much. I just get to do stuff like this, like show up on people's podcasts and do interviews and do things like Dungeons and Dragons for Democrats and stuff like that, which has been fun and really amazing and feel really lucky that I get to do that. It's been different for my family though, for sure, because a lot of them are getting proposals for me. Like, hey, is he still single? Because we know this girl should be perfect for him. She works in education. She's tall. Any other ping pong dates? No. Um, <laughs> I've been back to spin once and it was for my friend's little brother's birthday. No, no ping pong day. It was so funny when we were, when they told us that this is where we were going, I was like, well, did anyone do their research? I'm not very good at ping pong, nor do I really like ping pong. Also, it's a little racist that you're bringing two Asian people to play ping pong with each other on a date. Like, did someone not think this through? I love that. That's hysterical. And tell me what Dungeons, Dragons, and Democrats is about. 
there's a local organization in, in Austin and called Asian American Democrats of Central Texas. And two people, Ashley Chung and Becky Bullard, reached out to me after the show to see if I could help them with some local politicians who are running for, uh, for office in Austin, some Asian Americans uh, who are running for office. So I was like, of course, I'd love to, I'd love to help and help raise money and help raise awareness about these candidates and their issues. And the more we got to talking, we was just spitballing ideas about other fundraisers that we could do, other events that they could use me for. And I was like, yeah, whatever you want to use me for, let's do it. And she's like, well, ideally, we want to use you for something that, you know, you'd be interested in. Like, for example, D&D for Democrats. And I was like, wait, is that a thing? And she's like, well, no, but why can't it be a thing? And we were like, why can't this be a thing? And we just went for it. So we got Asian American people who are notable in the entertainment industry, like Zara Fazal, who's going to be the voice of Talia Al Ghul in the upcoming Batman animated feature, Death in the Family. We got Erica Ishii, amazing Twitch streamer and voice actress for Destiny 2 and a bunch of other things. And then Andrew Yang's team got in touch with us to help us promote the event. And they were like, okay, cool. Pause. Would, would Andrew want to play too? And they're like, oh yeah, sure. He loves this stuff. Apparently Andrew Yang loves D&D. And we're like, awesome. Not personally, like I was not personally a huge Andrew Yang fan, but I was like, this is going to be just really cool to get that level of exposure and like get that kind of thing going. And so we just did it. We just literally just came up with an idea, like reached out to all our connections, everybody who we thought would be interested in, and then opened up the fundraising. And we, we were just really trying to be smart with how we were asked for money. Like, hey, 20 bucks or whatever gets you a ticket so you can watch the thing. But if you donate a little bit more, maybe we'll give you a shout out during the game. You donate $1,000, we'll give you a named NPC in the game or something like that. And it just all came together. And it goes live tonight in one hour, actually. <laughs> um, I would say teaming up with Andrew Yang is pretty smart. For sure. It was, it was a huge move because his team helped us promote it like crazy. They helped us set up so much stuff. We really are grateful for him and his team. They did an amazing job for us. And I cannot, I cannot be thankful enough for the, their help. What was it like working with them? I mean, did you learn stuff? I learned a lot. I learned a lot very, very quickly because we moved the dates around a lot. We were talking about, do we want to do this live or do we want to record it ahead of time? If we do record it ahead of time, like how much editing, how much production, all this stuff, we were trying to figure out who's going to be able to show up at what times because different people who were going to come play with us couldn't be here for the whole time. So it was a lot of figuring out, okay, what, what can we, how can we run a game structurally so that everyone can feel like they're playing, but we also achieve our end goal of playing the full game. Okay, I'm totally a dungeon and dragon newbie. Can you talk to me about what it's like even playing that? Yeah, it's it's basically group storytelling is really what it is. Like, and, and we didn't do the whole thing with like the charts and the tables and the rule books, which I love doing. But we did a really bare bones and simple because a lot of the people who were playing with us they had never played D D before either. So we made it very very simple. Everyone had a very basic character, and the idea is that it's you know theater of the mind. It's the power of the imagination. It's a little bit of improv and voice acting, and just group storytelling tied all together. So my role as a dungeon master is to sort of build the world of the story, and then everyone else is the responsibility of the character to sort of populate the world and move through it in some ways. And the objective really is just to have fun. It's just to like see what happens, have fun, and like play around with your character and, and do things that you think that they would do. Zera in particular, she cracked me up. She was playing a character who has a hard time not turning everything into a parable or not like turning everything into like a pithy saying. But it was also Zero's first time playing. And so she was like trying to get still in the character, trying to figure it out. So every time she would do that, she would just quote a Bruce Springsteen song or a Madonna song or just drop random lyrics in her dialogue every once in a while. And it just, we all had to stop every time she did it and just take a minute to appreciate how genius it was. I literally, like, there were times where I had, like, had to take a walk for a second because I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> it was so funny. It so sounds it's just like, like a blast. It's amazing. Like when it, I really hope people watch it because it's two, it's two hours 
of just nonstop laughter is really what it is. How can people watch it? So it's going to be on Erica Ishii's Twitch channel, but it's going to go live in a few other places. If you go to D&D for Dems, we have a Twitter where there's going to be information on how to watch it there. But it's going to be posted in a couple other places, I imagine. So just keep an eye out for the D&D for Dems hashtag on Twitter, uh, or just follow at D&D for Dems uh, on Twitter as well. It'll be a great place to look. And just, you know, follow Donna's campaign. She's running a really uh, impressive race against John Carter in, the Tex in Texas' 31st district. And, you know, you hear a lot of pundits constantly talking about, oh, Texas is going to flip. Texas is going to flip. But this is a race where, like, no, this could actually make it flip. Like, there's a real chance that this could happen. Wow. Okay. So you're going to have to send me all those links so I can include it in the show notes. And you can watch after? Yeah. Yeah. There should be a way for people to watch it after. Exactly. I'll get all those links for you set up. That is so crazy. Oh my God. And speaking of impulse control, you might just end up stealing Fiesta signs. Yeah. Well, that, that definitely like, you know, they, they say, you know, all writers put a lid of themselves into whatever they create. And uh, <laughs> look, my thinking was with the Fiesta sign, it says April 20th to 30th, 2017 on the bottom of the sign. They're going to throw it away. You can't reuse that. It may as well live forever in my house. I love it. <laughs> That's too funny. Have you done any improv? I did theater a lot when I was growing up. Uh, I did a lot of high school theater. My temple puts on productions a lot. So I did a lot of stage management and production and, and stuff for them too. And I did a little theater a bit in college. Improv was always something that it was like, I have a lot of friends who did it. And I have seen a lot of improv. And I've seen a lot of good improv. But I feel like most of the improv I've seen is just bad and not because people are bad at it and not because people aren't funny i think that there is a distinction between being a comedian being an actor and being a funny person right and improv is something that people think that these three people can all do and, and it's just not always true like improv is a really specific set of skills primarily it's most important one is being quick on your feet is just being able to react and go and go and go it's a form of escapism, not in a bad way, but in the sense that you, you don't escape your situation. It's escapism of self, that you're allowed to transform your sense of self into something else for a brief period of time, which is really fun. Has D&D been an escapism for you? Absolutely. I think, you know, there's a really interesting article that came out a couple of years ago about prisons not allowing inmates to play D&D because they said it encouraged escape fantasies. But it was, again, it was the, it was the classic misunderstanding of what is an escape fantasy versus what is escapism. And escapism from the self, like it's really a useful tool and a therapeutic tool in a lot of ways for people to really get, take a step back and just not have to deal with their shit for a while. You know, just give people a space in which they can reflect on their lives in a different way. And the article was talking really interestingly about how you know, prisons are like stereotypically very gang oriented, right? Everyone's got their group or their gang or their sect, but the D&D &D table was a place that different gangs or different groups could intersect in a peaceful, harmonious way. The other argument, of course, was that D&D &D encouraged gambling because you need dice to play it. And so they were like, well, we don't want the dice being used for other things. We don't want to promote gambling or things like that. And so you have all these people being really creative with ways in which that they can create luck and probability within a game. They're making dice out of like little spinners. They're making little wheel of fortune type things there's just numbers on them and trying to come up with paper dice or something because they're so desperate to play these games. Because it's A, it speaks to a changing culture of who's in our prison system. And it, B, it speaks to just the general blindness of the criminal justice system in general. They can't see that this is such a valuable tool for inmates to process their own emotions, to process their own experiences in a very different light and helps them develop. So for me, when I think about it as terms of escapism, it is because it allows me to get out of my own head. It allows me to tell a story in a different way and it allows me to experience my own life differently in a healthy way. Tell me about your life. Oh God, what do you mean am I supposed to tell? 
as much as you will. Oh God. Well, okay. So broad strokes, right? I, I lived in Texas for pretty much my whole life. I went to college in Pennsylvania and grad school in New York, and I, I've moved back here. And it's an interesting thing. There's lots of layers to it, right? It, with everyone's life, especially. But I, I think about the layers of my own life. It's like, I have one level of being a Texan. I have one level of then of being an Indian. I have one level then of being an American. I have one level then of being a nerd. And it's all of these layers constantly in communication with each other that creates just sort of the day-to-day -day experience with that. Like a lot of people talk about code switching, just the ability to like switch back and forth between different groups, different peoples, different communities. And I think what most people don't realize is how seamlessly we all do code switching every single day to a point where we don't even realize it, that we, we are really good at putting on masks in and out of context everywhere we go. And to an extent, it's useful. It's important. It's how we survive. Because if some people acted the way they do in the office as they did at home or vice versa, right, a lot of people just wouldn't have jobs. So <laughs> like, it's important. It's important to have a sense of separation, to have a sense of like, this is who I am in this context, because it's, it's helpful. Like I, I talk about it with my therapist a lot of this notion of compartmentalization, about how like, guilty I feel about compartmentalizing certain parts of myself, because I don't feel like I'm being true to myself. And the thing that she constantly reminds me is that to a certain degree, compartmentalization is necessary for survival. Because if we truly had to feel every bit of ourself for 100% of the day, we wouldn't be able to do anything. <laughs> it is necessary to like, compartmentalize just to get up out of bed sometimes in the morning because the moments when you can be vulnerable and you can break down those barriers and you can do those are really special and, and good because of how rare they are what is the part that you have to compartmentalize uh, it's, it's different things it, it means different things in different contexts like one of the most common things i guess would be like being a nerd is an easy one to talk about right because now nerd culture is mainstream culture right stranger things big bang theory the it crowd the Marvel Universe has made everything more accessible to people. And that's really exciting and good to see that, you know, no longer is it the perception of the nerd being the kid shoved into the locker, right? Or being made fun of for his hobbies. But I was growing up during a time when that wasn't the case. Like my adolescent years and being a nerd was very much that, being bullied for a nerd, being rejected for a nerd. Now there, there's a part of me that as much as I want to celebrate, I, have, I also am like, nah, don't look at me. You know, <laughs> very much like still withdrawing into myself. and I'm not comfortable with it to some degrees because there's still times where I'm out in a social environment and I'm talking to people and some nerdy thing comes up and I see someone get shut down or I see someone like, oh, you like that? And there's a sense of judgment. And so it forces you compartmentalize. Like, okay, that's got to go in the compartment and I got to put a wall there because that can't come up right now. I have to suppress that part of myself, even if I am really excited to talk to this other person about it. So that's one way you know, in, which, in which it comes up for sure. And, you know, and sometimes it is necessary, right? Because if I have a 30 minute meeting with a student and I have another meeting immediately after that and the student says something about nerd culture, I can't just be like, oh my God, do you like this? I like this too. Let's talk about it right now. Because <laughs> as fun as that is, it's also not why they're here. And it's also not why I'm getting paid to do my job, right? Like I have to keep the conversation germane on the topic at hand, despite how fun it is to do that. So like, that's a pretty healthy level of compartmentalization that we all have to do to some extent. And that's, that's sort of how I see it in that way. I was actually surprised when you were talking about your layers that you didn't mention that you were a teacher right away because that seemed like, you know, a big part of your story on the show. I don't know. I feel like we spend too much time asking people when we just, when we meet them for the first time. So tell me about what you do. Like we, we spend a lot of time putting people in boxes based on their careers because especially in a world where we know that most people change their jobs nine to 27 times before they find the job that they retire from. So it doesn't make sense to me sometimes just to lean in or lead in in that direction because 
I don't know. My, I don't know that my job is as integral to my purpose as my purpose is to my job in that way, in the sense that I do a lot of stuff outside of work. I do a lot. I have, I have a lot of dimension to me in the sense that I, I have a lot going on. I have a lot of hobbies. I have a lot of interests. And so I like work. But work is also particularly frustrating right now in a pandemic where all my kids are virtual, but I have to still be in the office and it's just a whole, and we don't know what's going to happen with schools next year and colleges next year. And so it's like, eh, don't need to identify myself in that way necessarily all the time, not even from a frustration point, just from like a sense of like, there's, there's more to me than just what I do. I actually would love to know what back to school has been like for you. It's been a trip. Um, so we de- delayed the beginning of the school year by three weeks because no one literally had a clue or a plan what we were going to do, right? And so we've been virtual for about a month. And right, what's happening now is that faculty and staff are back on campuses. And all instruction is virtual. So everyone's sitting at their desk, you know, on their laptops, recording their lessons, doing their lessons. They started letting a few students come back to campus in small numbers, just opening up for people. So we had a trickle of kids come in, mostly just freshmen and sophomores right now. I think the plan is by next week to start letting juniors and seniors back. And most kids are staying at home. Most kids are smart enough to know that they should be staying at home. But for the kids who are coming back, they're still doing virtual instruction. They're bringing their laptops with them. They're sitting in their little cubbies with their little plexiglass dividers. And just they're, they're, the difference is they're doing online school at a different location other than their home. But I get it. It's necessary for some families. Some families have been really struggling with childcare, with feeding their kids. And that's a, that's a thing that school can provide for. It provides them a location where they have free internet, two free meals a day. and someone to watch them, bathrooms where they can be, a library where they can study. Schools are really essential services in a lot more ways than just public education. So it's really great that we're able to do that for those kids. My fear is that peer pressure is still a thing, right? And a lot of people's fear is that, you know, as more kids start coming back, kids will feel like, well, my friends are going back. Why can't I go back? And we're going to see a trickle turn into a flood. And it's just, it's scary because it's already such a sensitive situation in a, in a lot of these old buildings where you know, you can't actually replace the air filters to make them more efficient without replacing the entire HVAC system, <laughs> which, you know, we can get into how, why we need to invest more in public schools in a minute. But <laughs> it's, it's been an interesting time uh, just seeing students in the halls, but also recognizing that, like, it's a good thing that they're back, but it's a part of a larger problem with our system uh, that we're not able to respond effectively. Did any of them watch your show? Oh my God. Yeah. So many, so many of my students have seen the show. It's definitely a trip. A lot of the times I, when I meet with students over Zoom, we'll just spend the first five minutes of it just unpacking the show for them. They're like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm really talking to you. I'm like, I'm your counselor. You'd be talking to me whether, whether or not it's on the show. And it's a much bigger, it's a bigger deal for the parents because I'll be talking to the kids just fine. And the parents will come by like, is that Mr. Ganason? I just have to tell you how amazing you were on the show and all of this and all of that. And you should definitely meet my cousin. She'd be a great fit for you. There is a group of mothers at my school who are like, way too invested in my love life. Like I'm, I'm flattered, but a little frightened. Are you like being stalked on campus? Oh no, nothing, nothing like that. Like, let's be real. My level of fame, I'm not McConaughey. I was on a Netflix docu-series, which is a fancier way of, of saying trash TV. It's not even close to that. Again, like living in a pandemic, the fame thing is weird, right? I don't have paparazzi lined outside my door. No one has asked to take a selfie with me. Not that I'm asking for that. Like people, what people are doing that's creepy is just doing a lot of internet stalking, right? Following you on Twitter, liking every, like compulsively liking things and compulsively reaching out to you and sending multiple, multiple messages, which is fine. Like there's some people who are actually really funny with their messaging. <laughs> But yeah, it's, it's been a trip just getting all of this attention. Because again, 
no one who worked on the show, no one who was on the show had any idea how big of a thing this was going to be. Every single one of us was like, who's going to watch this? Who is going to watch this? Because this isn't The Bachelor. This isn't 90 Day Fiance. This is something very different. But I think that's what the audience picked up on is like, oh, this is different. We should watch it, which is a really fine line, you know, to cross with a lot of Netflix programs and a lot of streaming programs, right? Where it's too different for audiences or just different enough. Can you unpack it for me like you unpack it for your students? A lot of them want to know how I got started on the show. And so I tell them the, the simple story. I was in a work meeting. I got the call. I thought it was spam. And then I got the same call from six other people. So I was like, all right, screw it. I'll do it to get these people off my back. Uh, and then I found out that what it was, I was like, oh, this is actually pretty interesting. And the main thing I tell them is that like, they have all the same questions that most people ask. Like, what's it like being famous? Well, not much has really changed. I just get, rec- I, there's like a one in three chance I get rec- recognized when I go get groceries. What, ha- like, what can you tell us what happened? Is there going to be a season two? And a lot of it's like, no, I can't tell you. I don't know. If I did, I would. Honestly, the biggest unpacking thing for them is just like, it's still me. You know, I, the way I am in person is very much the way I am on the show. Just editing makes me look better. That's all. This is edited. <laughs> Good. I'm going to look great. <laughs> Did you speak to Seema at all? Yeah. I mean, like we, we, so I met Seema for the first time when she came to my house. Um, we, had, we had plenty of conversations off camera and she was there for that first uh, shooting. She was there like the whole weekend. So my family got to hang out with her and made friends with her. I think my aunt still like chats with her on WhatsApp a lot, actually. <laughs> yeah, she's all right. We, 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 we spent a lot of time together while she was here. And we did, she, I will say this for Seema, as much as people love to criticize her, she does really work hard to make you feel like her family and, and to make it clear that that's why she's so invested in you is because for her, this is a really important thing about building relationships and building that familial sense of community. That's all how a lot of Indians approach marriage. It's not as a romantic thing, but as a familial thing, that we are creating a larger family. What are your thoughts of working with a matchmaker now? Oh, God. I mean, so before, before the show started, I had no idea that this position existed. No one in my family has ever used a matchmaker before. I don't know anyone who has ever used a matchmaker before. So when, this, when the word came out that that's what we were going to be doing, we're like, oh, that's interesting. That's different. Let's give it a shot. After going through it, I mean, I would be open to doing it again. I had a lot of fun with the dates that she, she set me up on and she was fun to work with. And I'd be open to trying someone else too, you know, if I was still single, we'll see how it goes. It's definitely different. I think it's, a lot of people have equated it to like, it's Tinder, but slower, which again, pick whatever dating app you want, but it is slower. And I think there's a point to it being slower. It's intentionally set to slower so that you can actually take the time to learn more about this person. Because of the dating, an online dating situation, you start out, at 100% really excited to meet this person, and then all, you only can go down from there. I recognize that there are a lot of issues that come with the matchmaker, specifically on the casism side, the gender norm side, the colorism side, with how the matchmaker picks things and how the matchmaker has said things to people about, about the role that gender and race play in this whole thing. So that part is problematic. But I, I think the one thing I tried to make clear on all the dates that I went on too was those are not the things that matter to me. And if, if that's what matters to you, like we need to talk about that or we need to bring that up. And also like making sure that they're here for the right reasons, that no one is pressuring them into this, that they don't feel forced to be here, that they're not like, that this is of their own accord because that is still a thing that exists to a degree. You mentioned casism. Is that like the caste system? Yeah, yeah. So the caste system was abolished in India in 1950, but you know, it's still, it's one of those things that's now a social practice. There's this big case going on in Silicon Valley right now with cases hiring practices in the Valley because Indians have become so entrenched in the, the upper crust of Silicon Valley that a lot of top companies there 
practice these weird hiring practices that bar people from jobs based on case. And you see a lot in matchmaking too. Granted, most young people don't really give a shit about it. It's oftentimes used as a point to create drama and we love our drama. So it's, it's definitely, it definitely comes up for some people. But I, I do think that like, if case is used as a reason to prevent two people from getting married, it's usually not the two young people's trying to like make that point. It's someone else in the family. And it's usually something that's ignored pretty quickly from what I've seen. Although it depends, it, it can vary in some families. So some families do care about it a lot more than others. Some people do care about it a lot more than others. Are you single? I am actually seeing someone right now. I've been telling, I was doing all these podcasts and all these interviews telling people like, I don't know how you can do Zoom dating. It's gotta be so complicated, so stressful. I'm on Zoom all day with my students anyways. I don't have time for Zoom dating. The whole time while I was actually, you know, seeing someone over Zoom. <laughs> yeah, and it's been going really great. She's really awesome. And we, we've been spending a lot of time together and uh, it's, it's, been, it's been really nice. Well, you'll have to keep me posted. That's so exciting. And you said that you keep in touch with a bunch of people from the show. I hear there's like an insider Facebook group. It's not, an, it's not like an insider, it's not like we have juicy insider details, but it's like if you were on the show, we have a Facebook group that you can join us on. And not everybody on the show wants to. Some of the people who are on the show are fairly private people. Some people who are on the show just don't have Facebook. So we, we like, yeah, we have a Facebook group where we like post things about the show or we like post interviews that we're doing or we'll, um, we've been doing a lot of fundraising for Biden and Kamala Harris. So we post like stuff about that on the site, on the, on the page. And every once in a while, we'll do like a, a group chat, or like a messenger room where we can all hang out and chat. Those have been really fun, actually. I look, I like those the best because it's, you know, we all have this bizarre experience in common that we can just sort of sit and gab about. Could you date somebody of the opposite political party? Oh, God, no. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I say that, but I'm also, I also think like, ah, maybe. I mean, like, it depends on the person. I don't know. It, it's, it's one of those things that you don't know until you meet them. I've dated Republicans before. I didn't know that they were Republicans while I was dating them, but... <laughs> It, 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 it depends on how it comes up and it depends on how they present and approach it. I think I would have a much harder time dating someone who didn't vote. You can't look up who they voted for, but you can look up if they voted. I would have a much, much harder time dating someone who did not vote, especially in this election. That would be like, God, that would be really hard. I have, I have a lot of friends who are Republicans. It's hard being friends with them, but I'm still friends with them. Do you have any family members who are opposing? Yes and no. I think I have some family members who who aren't going to vote for who aren't going to vote for Trump, but who are going to vote for a lot of other Republicans on their ticket, uh, and a lot of local area Republicans. I think I have family members who honestly might try to write in somebody else because they're trolls, because my family loves to be argumentative and troll people for no good reason. <laughs> and it, it, it's difficult. Like we definitely have heated discussions about it for sure. And I think part of that is because a large percentage of my family are business people or engineers or people who see things in very binary states or very much, they see the country in terms of its economy, not in terms of its social standing or in terms of its ability to like present itself. They see a country in terms of like how successful they are and what policies they benefit from. And it's a hard thing to try to convince them and remind them that like the people that you're voting for may like line your pockets, but they're also actively supporting people who would love to see you dead or love to see you not in their country. Like you're, support, you're supporting a, a white supremacist party at this point. And that's really hard. Wow, have you had that conversation with some of your family members? I have, I really have. And they're like, no, it's not like that. That's, that they just, they're just pandering. They're just saying those things, they don't mean it. And it's, it's difficult because they don't, you know, no one, like the worst thing that's happened to my family was after 9-11 in this country. We got a few death threats, we got a few voicemails and that was it. 
but they also didn't go to high school in this country like I did. You know, they didn't have the experience of being around American teenagers in that context like I did. So their their experience of this country and it's it's you know racism towards people is very very different. Like a lot of my family understands that Black Lives Matter is important, but they don't know why. Yeah, can you talk to me a little bit more about? death threats that they've received and what their experience has been like? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a pretty standard thing for most brown people after 9-11. Just this, because to a bigot, you know, a Muslim looks like a Hindu, looks like a Jain, looks like a Sikh. You know, if you're brown and bearded, you're a threat. Islamophobia knows no skin shades. It, it, is, it is a one-size-fits-all thing. So, you know, after 9-11, mom and I definitely got death threats in our voicemails. We definitely got angry letters in the mail. It was a hard time, for sure. And I got bullied a lot in school. I was already getting bullied a lot in school for different reasons, but this just added a whole other layer to it. It didn't really get better, I think, per se. I just think that the the bullying just changed shape, you know? Because getting that random search at the airport, well, it's not really ever random. It's a form of bullying. It is. Where were you 9-11? I was in sixth grade. I remember it happened in the middle of homeroom, and we all stopped to talk about it and, like, we, sh- we turn on the TV, they let us go home early. I didn't really understand what's happening. I was like, I guess it's kind of sad, but are we get- we're getting out of school early, so that's, that's interesting. Mom came home and she brought a, f- and like, she didn't really know what was happening. She's like, well, look, I brought a coworker over. He's going to talk to us about it. And it was another Indian guy w- w- that she worked with. And he sort of like turned on the news and talked us through what was going on. Because she had been working. She hadn't been paying attention to the news. She just knew that something had happened. And I knew something had happened. And so we actually sat through and saw it. And we're like, oh, this is what's going on. I, I was really lucky. The school that I was going to, Fulmore Middle School, it's, it was a it was a liberal arts magnet middle school, and so they were very focused on the humanistic side of things. So immediately when we got back to school the next day, they had turned the entire curriculum around to be about Islam and Muslim identity and Muslim culture, because we had some Muslim students at the school, and their families came for, and like they they made a very clear statement, like we are a community of support, caring, and trust, and we're going to do everything in our power to make sure that like everyone is educated on what the differences between Islam and fundamentalist Islam and understanding that rhetoric. And they started offering classes about terrorism and like what the history of terrorism is. And it was incredible. It was a really progressive look towards it. That was in Texas? Yeah. Let's clarify, Austin is not the same as Texas. (laughs) Austin is the little liberal island in the sea of red. Very, very different place. Like you go 30 minutes outside Austin, you're not in Austin anymore. You are in Texas. Very, very different places the two for people that haven't seen your story on indian matchmaking can you just give them a little bit of that mom after mom's divorce you know she and i she brought me down to austin i was like one year old and my dad moved down here as well for work and so they were doing a split custody thing for a long time where i would spend a week with him or i would spend a week with her and then when the divorce was finalized i was spending more and more time with mom around 2000 my so my dad had remarried a few times the woman he married, they, they, were, they were going through problems as well, some of the same problems my mom was going through, and they were going through a divorce proceeding. And around the same time, dad was a hardware engineer. He was coming out with this new chip, uh, and there was an issue with money between the two of them. He was trying to put money in a trust fund or, or like set aside something for himself, and she was trying to like make a claim that she wanted half. That was part of their prenup agreement. Essentially, they were getting, conversations were getting heated and more aggressive, and she, he threatened that he was going to kill over the phone. She calls the cops. He gets sent to jail for a death threat. And while he's in prison, he makes contact with another inmate uh, and says, can you help me find someone who can help me kill my wife? So this inmate promptly goes to the police, tells them that, and they begin setting up a sting operation. After my dad is released for after a few days, 
they maintain contact. He starts contacting this person again, starts like asking for more questions. They do a whole sting and they, they catch my dad uh, in the act of giving him money. My dad and his wife did get divorced and, and my dad goes to jail for conspiracy to commit murder. Uh, and he was sent to prison for about 10 years. So at that point, you know, I, I'd got, I went from seeing him, you know, once every week to once every month when he was sort of in the middle of all of this to once every four or five months as I was entering middle school and high school. So, you know, I was already growing up in, in Austin with my mom and I, we, we, I spent more time with her than obviously I was, I was living with her and, you know, single parent, you know, working in the big city, like she was struggling to make ends meet. Like we grew up, I grew up eating rice and beans, not because we're Indian, but because that was literally the cheapest option that we had. Our best days were when Little Caesars once a month did customer appreciation day, where as long as you bought 20 pizzas, you get each pizza for a dollar each. So we just stack the fridge and the freezer with these $1 pizzas from Little Caesars. And it was great because we just live off of that for two weeks. Um, so yeah, like that's, that's basically how I grew up. And you know, we saw dad less and less because he got shuffled around different prisons in Texas for a really long time. So by the time college comes around, I knew I wanted to get out. I was like, I want to get out on my own. I want to go out and see the rest of the world. I was such a huge brat about it too. I was like, anyone who stays in state for college is never going to grow up. You're going to be coming to your mama's house on the weekend, do laundry and pick up snacks. You're not going to really live. Now, as a college counselor, I recognize like, oh, like that was a little mean. <laughs> because the reality is that not everybody can afford to do that. And that's not right for everybody. Some people legitimately need to be at home for whatever reason. For, for, and for some people, like they need to stay in state to take care of family or to be close to things or to have access to different opportunities. Like it's a real thing. But I went all the way to Meadville, Pennsylvania in Allegheny College. And uh, around that time too, my dad also got out of prison. And so we, we, it, was, it was sort of the beginning of our second tier of our relationship where we hadn't seen each other in almost a decade. And I, was, I had gone from being a little boy to a young man. And he had gone from being my father to being a person who I did not recognize as a, in the role of parent. And so we started trying to rebuild our relationship. We started trying to see each other more and more. We started trying to do what we could to maintain contact. And so I would call him once a week when I was home for vacations like winter and summer. I would go over to his place once a week and help him with chores, mow his lawn, have dinner with him sometimes, take him to the hospital. Because we just tried. We tried really hard to like be in each other's lives for a long time. But we started falling into a pattern uh, where we things would be great, then we'd have a big fight, we wouldn't talk for a while, and then we'd pick up like nothing ever happened. And the cycle would just keep going on and going on and going on. So by the time it's the year before grad school, I'm getting fed up. And I'm thinking, there's no way this is going to change. This is a toxic cycle that just can repeat itself. And so finally, we have a fight that gets really bad. And I said, I'm just not going to talk to him again. He's, he told me, don't, like, he, 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 want, he, was, he has diabetes. And so he, his concern was that I um, would get diabetes as well. And it would affect my eyes in some way. So I said, I want you to see my ophthalmologist. And I said, well, I'm about to fly to New York tomorrow to go to grad school. So... I can see him when I come back. And he was furious. He was so angry. He said, don't call me again until you've seen my ophthalmologist. I don't want to talk to you until you've seen my ophthalmologist. And I was like, well, okay, let's break this down. Like that, that was, this is another fight that's edited in this way. And it's going to be more pain and more of a cycle. And I don't know when I'm going to get to see his ophthalmologist. I'm just going to go see one in New York. So I guess I'm just not going to talk to him. Okay. I got to bring something else up too. I did not know that you could go to jail for threatening someone's life. Yeah, I think it's it's a tricky thing because when I was growing up, that was what I had always been explained to me was that this is what happened. He threatened to kill someone and then he went to jail. 
What I realized later is that no one had actually bothered to look at the court documents. So when I pulled up the court documents, I saw this whole other side of him actually meeting with a hitman, trying to contact someone, like putting together this conspiracy to commit murder. That was the larger thing. It's not just the death threat, it's the actual following up on the planning and the premeditation. Yeah, like how do you even find a hitman? Yeah, it's hard to find a good hitman. <laughs> there, was a, there was a story that came out a while ago. I can't remember the exact details, but it's the most ridiculous thing that this guy got arrested for conspiracy to commit murder because his hitman contracted the, the job that he was supposed to do to another hitman who contracted it out to somebody else who contracted it out to somebody. Like they just kept like not wanting, like that's how crazy the gig economy has made everyone is that hitmen have their own hitmen who have their own hitmen who have their own hitmen that you just keep subcontracting it down the line until you find one guy and then that person's like, oh, I'm just going to call the cops. <laughs> oh my gosh, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for coming on the show and I can't wait to hear what my daddy has to say. <laughs> my pleasure. My pleasure. It was a lot of fun. So daddy, what did you think? Well, I thought he was a very interesting young man. He has quite an imagination getting on TV, networking with people. He's been a different person in Texas, a different person in Austin. He even puts himself in the category as being a nerd. He has so many things that a lot of us experience where he's had to overcome different prejudices, being bullied, issues with a disruptive family life. And no matter what, he finds a path to overcome it and he uses his imagination sometimes to look at things differently. It's almost like talking to yourself in the mirror it, or reaching out and playing different parts. That's why doing acting, doing different, whether it's comedy or doing speech, whether it's doing analyzing things from other people's perspective as being a teacher and listening to students and helping in guidance. He's used all of his facets okay, or layers, however your definition might be, to really understand himself and where he's able to then understand many different types of people and their problems by experiencing them himself and finding a path that he can be happy with with himself is the most important ingredient in helping other people. And that's what he's done. He seems to me like such a positive, happy-go-lucky kind of guy. I think what he has is that he has a vivid imagination. It's almost like he's a comic book character. Even yours truly collected comic books. And of course, as you know, I played chess. I was on the debate team. I played sports, was on student council. I studied many different things in college, majored in three or four different things, I traveled the country. When you're involved in so many different facets and where you're really with different types of people, you almost behave or act in that network of people. And uh, sometimes they don't necessarily uh, fit where, you know, everybody gets along, but by understanding how all different people act and think and are comfortable in that environment, you're able to have different doors that open where you can channel to these different areas and understand different realities 
by different types of people and how they're going to react in different realities. But I think what's also very important is that when you have that type of experience, you're able to go on the fly. You're able to pivot a lot faster. You're actually a very be quick-witted because you've been around so many different types of people and so many different types of assignments or arrangements that occur in your life that you're able to adjust much easier. Today's episode is sponsored by Rin 10 Media. If you want to look and sound your best for a podcast of your own, you want to get in touch with Rin 10 Media. When I first contacted them, Better Call Daddy was just a twinkle in my daddy's eye. And now, only after a couple months in, we're at like 50 episodes. Reach out to info at ren10media.co.za and use the subject line, Better Call Daddy. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and tune in. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Yeah. <laughs>